and welcome back to, well, we don't know what episode this is because we might be backlogged a little bit, but welcome back to the show. I'm Zachary Greenwald, joined as always by Kyle Klochenko. Our guest is Alex Harrison, who's been on the show before. Uh, today, we'll be discussing concurrent training with Alex, and we're going to be using uh, an image within a study performed by Coffee and Holly titled Concurrent Exercise Training, Do Opposites Distract? And a particular graphic within this bout of literature shows that with untrained populations, when you have an endurance dosage of training, it's about equal to the gains you would have from an endurance standpoint to a concurrent training plan. Meaning that if you're lifting weights, and performing some type of aerobic exercise or endurance exercise, your endurance will be just as improved as if uh, it would be just as improved relative to had you done endurance alone. The same holds true for strength and for hypertrophy. That is that if you have that concurrent plan, your strength and hypertrophy will stay the same if you are untrained. So the Endurance doesn't have an interference effect. However, we start to see this quote-unquote interference effect with trained populations with strength and hypertrophy. However, with a concurrent training plan, the same graph, which we'll attach in the show notes, shows that just like the untrained population, if you have weight training with endurance, your endurance gains will be about as good as they would have been had you just done endurance alone. So today we'll be talking about high intensity interval training, low slung steady state uh, aerobic training, and how that all kind of comes together with strength training and hypertrophy to describe a concurrent plan, what uh, potential misconceptions might be, um, where the literature is all coming together now, and we, we've thanked Alex for uh, not just taking the PhD by his name and, and kind of cutting off his continued education himself. In fact, this very topic required him to do a bit more investigation, which he's done and will be bringing to the podcast today. So great to see uh, even the people who've accomplished so much and at the head of their field still learning more and eager to learn more. And now after that long, extended, long-winded uh, open uh, Alex, thanks for for joining us again, and hopefully I didn't miss anything that you want to touch on there. No, I think you nailed it. Thanks for having me on again. Um, yeah, I, I think the moral of the story is the interference effect doesn't exist for untrained people, so um, that's probably a big misconception in, in the strength community, uh, especially maybe the lesser educated strength community, is that there's a big interference effect for everybody, and that's just not true. Uh, and but that it does exist and it's very real and you should program around it for the trained population. And the more well-trained a person is, the more the interference effect should come into consideration when making programming decisions. Great. So you've dived into some of the literature and I'd imagine that going into that uh, exploration, you had some thoughts of your own because you've consulted with CrossFitters. Uh, you yourself have been on both sides of that power and endurance. Mm -hmm. uh, for those who haven't listened to Alex's previous episode, Alex spent time uh, 
training bobsled and was uh, going to be uh, actually was a, a an Olympic hopeful uh, on Team USA's bobsled uh, group, and now has made a switch to endurance training. So we thought, who, who better to discuss uh, concurrent training from going from extreme bouts of power on a very high end to now pursuing uh, endurance as well. Alex, was there anything that you had confirmed or I should say supported within your own beliefs as you went into the research? And were there, by that same token, any other uh, things that you perhaps had close but not quite all the way there? Yeah, for sure. So I, um, I, I was actually, I was close on just about all of it, but I, I think a couple of the biggest differences that I noticed from my own conceptions were that I, I actually didn't realize that long, slow distance training improved VO2 max as much as it did. I realized that it it improves VO2. I realized that there would be marginal gains in VO2 max and that there would be um, work capacity improvements and increases in capillary density and that sort of thing and all those physiological tissue level uh changes that happen with long slow distance but it was interesting to see that it, it does improve vo2 max substantially um, high intensity interval training as suspected improves it more and we'll get into the nuances of that uh more i'm sure um but another another uh i guess misconception that that i had was that the interference effect um it, it's smaller for most people than I had previously thought. And again, you mentioned that I come from a speed, power, strength background of bobsledding. And so I was sort of at the the really skinny end of the of the distribution curve of strength, power, and speed, operating with no endurance and a lot of the strength, power, and speed. And so I I was intimately aware of the inter interference effect because if I did cardio, I noticed that my training would absolutely suffer. Um, but that's not the case for most people who don't spend their lives optimizing uh, optimizing their lives for strength and power. Now, uh, Alex, would you, upon reflection, have maybe once or twice gone up from the couch to get the mail outside? <laughs> um, probably not. <laughs> for the purpose of, for the purpose of being a bobsledder, my job was five seconds long, and I needed to be the most powerful human that I could be. So. No, I think it was the right choice to avoid, <laughs> avoid any and all activity. <laughs> that, that when Alex was first discussing his background, he had mentioned that because he was trying to improve uh, genetic potential and power and speed-related uh, activities that would carry over bobsled, that he would ask uh, his wife to politely get the, the mail rather than walk out there and, and risk the aerobic uh <laughs> With that uh, exercise, uh, that non-exercise activity, uh, so just had to throw that in there as well. <laughs> yeah, it's been it's been a different a different world now that I'm training for endurance for sure. Are you, are you required to do a lot more uh, household chores? <laughs> yeah, I take it upon myself. Actually, it, you'd never think that you would miss things like uh, going and getting the mail or taking the garbage out or or getting to jog up and down the stairs with your dogs or whatever. Um, but uh, but really, it, it's nice to have my legs again. So um, before uh, the podcast, we talked briefly that you would want to begin with uh, how high intensity interval training and low intensity training affects uh, aerobic capacity. So. If you want to just dive into that and maybe define what um, aerobic capacity means, because uh, it's funny, we actually had uh, had James on again not too long ago, and I talked about how it seems that there's so many 
different definitions for the same term potentially. Uh, so just making sure that everyone knows exactly what we're talking about. For sure. So I guess I would define it simply as the, the maximum amount of oxygen that you can consume relative to your body weight. Awesome. So, um, well, that was, that brings up another one of the differences, um, uh, in what my perception was when I dove into the most recent research on high intensity interval training versus long, slow distance. Um, the reality is, um, shoot, I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> um, oh, um, so the, uh, a lot of a lot of uh, the confusion in um, it, in the literature or the even especially the practicing population of people who want to do high intensity versus long slow distance the the confusion of wh which one is better which one improves uh, maximum oxygen consumption better comes from the fact that there's about a hundred different ways that you can do high intensity interval training and there's only really one or two, I mean you're, if you're going to do long, slow distance, you're going to train at such a low intensity that you can sustain it for at least 15, 20 minutes to three hours. Um, but that variability in the way that it is studied has led to the discrepancy in the research results. And specifically, the big, the kicker, I think, is that whenever high intensity interval training has shown to be less effective uh, for aerobic uh, capacity improvements than long, slow distance, it's almost always because they used shorter work to rest ratio or, or a, low, a lower work to rest ratio. That is shorter work bouts, longer rest intervals. So mm. the, the most effective way to do high intensity interval training is actually um, closer to one to one or two to one uh, work to rest ratio or even longer. Um, and I, I believe that some of the most profound uh, increases in VO2 max have come from like three to one and four to one uh, work to rest ratios. So some of the negative results for high intensity interval training have come from studies that have used um, like 0.1 to one or 0.5 to one where it's where the people have two to 10 times as much rest as they do work. Mm. Which, which makes it hard to accumulate much time with a very high heart rate. And I think that one of the biggest driving factors for uh, aerobic capacity improvement is probably, as we'll see in the research in a decade to come, it's probably related to how, like the area under the curve of your heart rate, how much time can you spend at a very high heart rate? Yeah, I know uh, I've recently... Um as we were talking about setting up this podcast, I read, um, I believe I'm going to say their name wrong, but Paul Larson and um, I can't remember how to say that other guy's name, but like Martin Boucher, Bouchette. Okay. Did you happen to look at that one? I, is it a recent study, like a single study? I know it was, it was actually not a study. It was a review they did uh, in 2013. No, I didn't and, see that one. Yeah. They came up with uh, six different types of, uh, high intensity training mm -hmm. and, uh, type one being the more aerobic adaptations uh, then type five and six would be more of your uh, maybe what we've talked about before the super maximal type mm -hmm. effort mm -hmm. during six by 30 seconds fully all out with three minute rest so kind of like re repeated wind gate tests kind of stuff yeah um whereas the the aerobic was maybe 10 on 20 off for 10 for 10 minutes and then 
a three to five minute rest and then repeating that. So you are spending a lot of time at that um, VO2 max type pace or, or high heart rate. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the work bout is so short, it doesn't accumulate a bunch of um, metabolites, uh, lactic acid, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by the next time you go again, you're able to, to recover uh, and keep going. And did they, so he was, this was a review where they categorized uh, different types of high intensity interval training uh, into categories. Did they, did they reflect on, or did they provide data for magnitude of VO2 max improvement with various types or how the, how the, the adaptation responses differed between the categories? Yeah. So, um, I won't be able to dive as much into that as I'm sure you, you could read it and understand. Uh, but um, they did mention uh, like the VO2, and it wasn't relative to low intensity. It was just a review on high intensity literature. Got it. Um, and uh, yeah, they had they mentioned the VO2 responses, the glycolytic response of yeah, yeah. categories, uh, and so on. Cool. Yeah, that that's one that I will have to look into. I I was uh, for the purpose of my my review here. I was I was uh, or the review that I did for this podcast. I was looking to. Uh, examine sort of high intensity interval training versus long slow distance um, because in all honesty there's there's certainly decades and decades of of uh, really well supported evidence for people being very aerobically fit doing lots of long slow distance lots more than a typical crossfit participant would ever do yeah and so i just wanted to flesh out like is there a better way, especially for a CrossFit participant who doesn't want to spend uh, like three hours every Saturday running and then two more hours on Sunday running? And it didn't appear that the most that it was most beneficial to spend as much time in a high intensity atmosphere that you could recover from. Yeah, yeah. so that's 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 definitely what I see in the literature as well. Is is as, as long as as long as you are able to recover from it, more is better in terms of cardio, and that applies to high intensity interval training too. And I think importantly, it it's about how much time can you spend with your heart rate elevated. So just because you apply a stimulus that spikes your heart rate to 190, and then you give yourself you know, like three to five minutes rest, and your heart rate recovers back down to 100 in that time, like you, you may not be spending as much time in a very high heart rate scenario as if you were to do like 30 seconds on, 15 seconds off, near maximally for 20 minutes or whatever. That whole 20 minutes, if you did that, that whole 20 minutes, you'd be between like 170 and 190 for your heart rate, or maybe 165 and 190. So the form might be good for force production and power, but not as good for that the the type of uh, aerobic adaptations that a crossfitter would be looking for, um, and, and I think my next question then is, if you are uh, training for high intensity intervals, whether it's for CrossFit or you just want to involve it as part of your plan, would a good recommended pacing strategy for the majority of this work? be one that or would be a pace that you could perhaps begin conservatively and add to rather than trying to hit as hard as you can just so as you mentioned yes. you could more time there yeah 100 percent, yes okay awesome yeah that's been i think for us at least that's been one of the biggest uh uh 
what we talk about most is the the intensity of the effort seems to vary a lot mm-hmm. based on what we need. Um, but if you really want to spend, like you won't be able to do that full 20 minutes if you go all out in 30 seconds. For sure. That's that's one of the most hilarious things for me watching something like the CrossFit Games or a lot of regional regional competitions or especially like local competitions is people go so – they go out so fast. If you were to look at their if, – if you were to quantify their mechanical work rate during the first two minutes of their whatever they're doing, um, their work rate is so much higher uh, in the beginning of every competition competitive wad uh, than it is in like the middle five minutes in such it's like a 20 minute event it's it's funny but yeah you, you want you want to make it relatively level uh when you're training so i think and often in crossfit just staying here for a second it's quite common that people perform exercises on the minute mm-hmm. with sense of repeated uh, uh, effort and it sounds like that because you know i used to think well you know it's a nice way to get in extra technique extra practice extra volumes but i wasn't quite sure on how much of those adaptations were helping Mm -hmm. for the intensity work but it seems like you know just all the more evidence to involve some kind of um on the minute or something like that type training uh, in a, in a CrossFitters program, especially. Yeah, for sure. I think I think that's a great way to train specific to CrossFit. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, you know, outside of the the specific uh, competition demands that one might want to periodize mm-hmm. around say an upcoming competition, yeah. and uh, along those lines alex has, is that something that you would then advise to someone who comes to you who is a crossfitter uh how now are you thinking about like programming more of the nuts and bolts of this so um for the purpose of most of my clients i actually leave most of the crossfit uh programming well, all of the crossfit programming to their local crossfit coach or to an online crossfit specific coach and i program things like strength training or if they come to me for a specific aerobic fitness program i can program like a cycling program or a rowing specific program or running or like all three um but in terms of programming like uh on the minute cleans or on the minute 10 calorie this plus some pull-ups or something like that. I don't do any of that because honestly, I don't have enough um, personal experience with it to program it well. And I don't think there's certainly not scientific literature on how many pull-ups you should do in your on the minute, whatever Um, (laughs) that doesn't exist in science yet. Uh, Hopefully, hopefully it will uh, eventually, but I think we're pretty far from that. Um, So, as far as as far as when people come to me, usually I act as a consultant where I I try to provide them information on how they should organize their microcycle or their one week structure uh, and their one month structure and their annual structure. Um, and so I will I will consult them on exercise order or on uh, session order within the day. And I think that's one of the biggest value uh, things that I do within RP when I consult is I. I, I help folks decide, like, should my cardio come first or uh, should I split my workouts up or should I do them all together? Mm. That sort of thing. And, and, and is there uh, anything within that advice that our, our audience might be able to, like, gleam insight into or, or ways that that might now change based on this literature? 
Yeah, for sure. So I think that the the interference effect can be reduced by doing your higher intensity interval training immediately after your weight training instead of before it, if you have to do the two in the same session. So doing your work, your and, and maybe that's intuitive to a lot of people because you're like, yeah, I would never go row intervals and then try to squat because I would have nothing left in my legs. Uh, but that's the, the interference effect largely takes place there because it, in the case of doing high intensity interval training before weightlifting, just simply because you're fatigued when you're weightlifting. And if you're fatigued when you're weightlifting, you can't uh, apply a neural strength stimulus at all because you're, you're just fatigued. Um, so within session, if you have to do the two together, uh, a high intensity interval training plus a strength training, it needs, the high intensity interval training should absolutely happen afterwards. Um, and I usually advise, like, if you have time, take 15 minutes between the two and slam a bunch of carbs and protein and at the be at the beginning of that 15 minutes and then sit and rest and so that you can like I, I tell them let let the adaptations or the recovery sink in a little bit from the strength training basically what i'm trying to do is get some separation because the more separation the better for both for both outcomes interestingly though the the opposite is true if you're going for purely aerobic like if you're a triathlete if you're going for purely aerobic enhancement and you don't care about maintaining your strength or building muscle as much or at all um, doing your endurance training directly before strength training can actually cause the strength training to continue the stimulus provided by the first endurance training it can elongate it basically and is that because um, endurance training in it, or sorry, rather resistance training in itself kind of acts as an interval type training? I know it's not not the same, but yeah, the heart rate peaks and then comes back down. Mm -hmm. Yep. And there's just simply put some of the cellular adaptations that are stimulated by endurance training are just uh, there. Some of the adaptations are just due to simple activity. So just reactivating the muscles over and over again in the subsequent and uh, resistance training bout after the endurance training session is sufficient to uh, keep those uh, keep stimulating the muscles for future adaptation and endurance. And um, you mentioned the maintenance of strength. Do you think that someone could uh, maintain previous strength that they had, or be just maybe a slight decrease if they, let's say, they were um, had reached adequate strength levels for their whatever the desire, and then like, and then now they want to focus more on endurance event, or let's say they are a CrossFit athlete and they're like, the switch is now to more uh, event focused endurance related activities. But if I put this after, I can maintain that strength to some extent. Yeah, um, absolutely, and that should be the goal. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, Alex, I, I have a, a question. <clears throat> In we, we know this interference effect is real. Um, in, in your um, in, in your own research, did you see any evidence pointing towards the long, slow distances having less distraction? So that let's just say we now know that the long, slow distance can improve VO two max, perhaps previous, uh, perhaps more than previously thought. Would there be any reason that if strength is your focus? but you're a CrossFitter or you're just an athlete who wants as much of it all at once as possible to work on strength with long, slow distance in the order that you mentioned. Yes. And it probably, the difference 
the difference that you would see in using long slow distance as opposed to high intensity interval training for the purpose of getting as much aerobic and as much strength improvement as possible um, the difference between the two approaches probably grows as the athlete is more well trained so a more the a more well trained athlete will probably have a greater interference effect from high intensity interval training than from long slow distance um, but already it takes a fairly high training status to even see an inter interference effect and then an even higher training status even higher baseline strength levels to see a difference in the interference effects between lsd and hit training so uh for most people who are at a crossfit gym doing crossfit i would say it doesn't make much difference um which lends credence to the idea that they should probably be doing mostly high intensity interval training for their endurance training because most people aren't if they can get the same benefit for less total time uh, without any trade-offs because they are not of high enough training status yet then they should do that thing because it's just more time efficient i, I have two uh, questions off of that one would be to what you just said is I guess that's all within the uh, umbrella that obviously you're recovering um, yes. day to day because if you're just doing high intensity every day, uh, you can very easily surpass your recoverability. And, yeah, 100%. Yeah. Um, and then the next thing would be what do you think those uh, strength levels or train uh, the level of training that you're at would be? For when those time points might occur of the interference effect maybe starts and then when it really starts to affect your um your ability to adapt uh, i'd imagine just thinking about it that just looking at current crossfit athletes even the higher level ones the weights and the endurance capabilities to have that might give you like a um kind of like end point for where someone could get on doing a little bit of both mm -hmm. yeah i i think that I usually talk in terms of relative strength. So I would say that the interference effect probably doesn't exist below a uh, 1.0. Uh, I would say it, it doesn't exist to a, a margin that matters uh, below 1.0 uh, to a one-to-one -one squat to body weight ratio. So if you can squat full depth, your body weight on the bar, um, or, or less, and that's you, then it, it, you don't need to worry about the interference effect whatsoever. And I would say that it is a slow-growing interference effect as you approach 1.5 or 1.7 times body weight squat. And you can use different lifts too if you don't squat. If you do pulls or deadlifts or something, you can say uh, roughly the same numbers for deadlift or maybe just a touch higher, 1.2 uh, as a baseline. Um, so the the interference effect grows. It's not like it turns on at 1.7 or 1.5. It doesn't just turn on and all of a sudden we've got an interference effect. It's it grows just like any physiological phenomenon. It grows very slowly and steadily um, as a person gets stronger. So for a person to in, uh, experience really a difference between the interference effect of LSD versus HIT training, I would say closer to a double body weight squat would probably be necessary, or at least a 1.7 or 1.8. And that's for men. And so if you dial it back just a touch for women, I would guess that maybe take the numbers all down by 0.3 or 0.4 and you'd have uh, 
similar, I'd, I'd make similar assumptions for women, but it's not well studied in women, to be honest. So um, it's important then to understand when this interference effect is perhaps kicking in. And like uh, I've heard Dr. Azertel say, like knowing the horizon uh, before the storm hits. And, you know, when I, so I, when I am in a strength block, the type of um, fatigue is notably different than when I'm coming up against recoverable abilities and say uh, more of a, a volume work capacity block. Things are just like with the strength at least, uh, I feel kind of fuzzy in, in my head. I just don't have a, a like a pop. My, uh, even if I'm, especially if I'm doing power, like my, my lifts, my snatches and cleans just don't have the same uh, efficiency. It doesn't quote unquote like quick. Hmm. Um, and you're, so you're saying that, that you experience that when you're doing a strength or power I, focus block? Yeah, it, if I'm um, coming up against like perhaps having to pivot or deload. Mm -hmm. Okay. And when I do more volume based training, I'll start, no like if I'm pushing the bounds of that, I'll notice like some achiness at, in my joints um, where I just don't really feel great in my body. I feel kind of stiff. Mm -hmm. Could you imagine that because ultimately with high intensity, you accumulate so much volume that some indicators of you perhaps having done too much might just be like the that kind of stiff feeling or achy feeling you might get with too much volume as you'd get with, say, like a bodybuilding block, not as much of like the neuro fatigue from a strength or power uh, block? That is a good question. I, I would say... Have you experienced similar things or have noticed more generally that those that these different fatigues seem to exist with the neuromuscular considerations of strength training and power? Yeah, for sure. So um, like the fatigue that I tend to get from a volume training, block volume being hypertrophy, sets of 10, that sort of thing, um, is obviously soreness, DOMS. Uh, that's delayed onset muscle soreness. Um, I... I would say from a strength block, I get some of that. And if I'm really pushing the intensity, I sort of get what I would call, call flatness, meaning like I, you're right, I don't have that pop. I don't have the, um, I just feel, I, I, I say that I feel neurologically fatigued, but I have absolutely no scientific evidence that it's my nerves that are <laughs> fatigued, but that's what it feels like. Um, and, and my wife and I use that like, that term all the time because we're, we're both sports scientists we but we actually have no evidence that it's our nerves that are fatigued at all but that's sort of what it feels like it feels like we just don't have that activation ability to really turn it on if we've really been uh taxing that activation ability at, at, at very high intensities in a strength and power block but i would say that if you're in a well-designed strength and power block the and you're preparing if you're in a strength and power block i'm guessing that you're preparing for an upcoming competition or you have a reason to be in the strength and power block and so you should be in preparation for something meaning that the volume should probably be tapering while the intensity goes up um, and so oftentimes if you're doing it well you should feel a little bit of that neurological flatness fatigue inability to activate in the middle of the training block and then it should taper it should wane as you go so that you feel fresh and snappy and poppy and like you can jump and uh, explode up out of the hole of a squat that sort of thing um, but with high intensity interval training, I would say that the, the most common, uh, fatigue sensation that I've had from stuff like that is just my legs are, I guess, 
I would use the same term, but mean something different. I'd say flat, meaning I cer certainly can't jump because I'm just tired. Um, but I think the first sign of overtraining in a high intensity interval training situation is probably um, a lack. It's on the emotional side of things. It's a lack of desire to train, a lack of desire to do more high intensity intervals. That's definitely what I notice most, most with my clients, just because it takes so much effort to get there, even in a, a state that's, you know, you're feeling pretty good. You you have perhaps a little bit more, well, I, I sometimes get that same nervous anticipation for heavier squats, but you, you have some sense of, okay, this is going to be unpleasant yeah, by the end. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> not wanting to uh, put that together. And, and, you know, one way of kind of applying something that uh, we, re we recently spoke with, um, Mike Tashir from Reactive Training Systems, if you're familiar with Mike. Um, I've heard of, he, I've heard of uh, RTS, yeah. Yeah, so he, he just spoke about, you know, um, if you have a day that doesn't feel great, uh, maybe don't just deload yet. Like, see if when the next week comes back around, if, if your results are still going down, then you can call it there. I think the same thing would apply for high-intensity interval training. Maybe you had a bad day. Yeah. So you weren't motivated to yeah. do it. But you have multiple weeks where you're just like, man, I am not getting up for this. Perhaps that would be the sign, right? And as I'm just now, I've, I've experienced that a lot with my CrossFitters. Yeah, everybody has bad days. Um, and the good news is you can still get huge aerobic stimuli and adaptations on bad days. And you can even perform really well aerobically on bad days. So uh, my wife and I talked to a sports psychologist uh, who is, I think, the head of his sports psychology department PhD in sports psychology at Adams State. Um, and he works with their cross-country team and their track team, um, which I believe have won national championships and such. His name is Brian, Dr. Brian Zuliger. Um, but he, uh, he said um, one of the things that he shares with all endurance athletes or people who are going to do endurance training is, one, you don't have to feel good to do well in endurance activity. And two, you can make your worst days better than somebody else's worst day so you can still put you can still put forth a really good effort and if you look at the scientific literature on like fatigue lack of sleep lack of hydration lack of nutrition like you have to be so far physio physiologically depressed physiologically off um to have really big measurable decrements in aerobic ability like you have to be you have to have lost like two and a half to five pounds of water from your body to, to see any decrement in aerobic performance. You have to have lost, um, you, like chronically lose sleep for weeks and weeks and weeks to see any change in an aerobic performance. So the point being, you're absolutely right. Like you're going to have bad days. You can push through them and still get a great training benefit. Um, but if you're chronically feeling depleted, tired, exhausted all the time, then yeah, skip your hit training and go sleep. Yeah, I we were talking about this not long ago, um, where to reactively just to get, use Mike's uh, idea. He, he, he spoke when he was on about his, his concept is emerging strategies, which really speaks to responding to things reactively. Mm -hmm. um, for the audience listening, we can have planned deloads or pivot periods in response to a. Uh, perhaps a competitive goal or in a competitive season. Um, 
You can also take reactive deloads, which really just in response to those kind of like off feeling days. And this can really also help with things like just making sure and, and not don't believe that there's any literature on this correlating fatigue or, or reported fatigue with uh, injury rates, though I wouldn't be surprised if there was. Oh, there is for sure. Okay, yep, great. There we go. Yeah. Um, so that if you have one of those days where you're like, should I, shouldn't I? Well, you can still go into the gym and not just have a meh session, but still get adaptations mm. on this aerobic side of things. Um, this is uh, fascinating to me in, in, in many regards, uh, Alex, because when, you know, not, not even, you know, two, three years ago for our um, CrossFitters, I really just saw, <coughs> oh, excuse me. That's right. I saw that long, slow distances, if they weren't specific to a sport, as strictly being good for recovery. So mm-hmm. it's cool to see that there's just a lot more to this than meets the eye. For sure. Yeah, that, that, um, that, well, I came from the opposite camp because I come from track and field originally. Um, so I, I, I saw one of the biggest lacks was, uh, or one of the biggest mistakes, I guess, in, in CrossFit was trying to use long, slow distance as, and oftentimes with CrossFitters who are not very fit, it turns, turns into like uh, long, moderate effort distance because it's still hard. Um, it is it, trying to use that as recovery rather than an aerobic stimulus. Whereas like if you want, if you want to do like, uh, if you want to do some activity for recovery to increase blood flow and increase your heart rate, but you want it to actually be recovery in CrossFit, it needs to be like so easy, really, really easy. I'm talking heart rate of a hundred, heart rate of 95 to 110. Like that is a recovery type heart rate, um, maybe up to 120, but most CrossFitters can't go for a jog at that heart rate. Like, I mean, certainly lots of them can, but a lot of them, like, a lot of folks, myself included, I don't think I could go jog at nine minute pace and keep my heart rate below 120. Yeah, that's hard. And that's sti- that's stimulative. Like if you're over 120, you're stimulating aer- aerobic something. You're not you're not recovering at all. You're training. If there are folks who might not have the best heart rate type monitoring systems, might you have recommendations for what that would look like from a more communicative RPE? Like, a, uh, like what that RP would look like based on your ability to uh, carry out a conversation? Yeah. Or not? Yeah. So fully conversational, just like I am right now, uh, that yeah. that would be a recovery. Because I could talk to you guys in the same manner that I am now if I were walking at three miles per hour on a treadmill. But if I started jogging at six miles per hour or 10-minute mile pace, I would take a lot more deep breaths. And I would have to pause between sentences. I could probably still get out a sentence, and then I'd have to take a couple breaths and then get out another sentence. Um, and that's if you if you have to take pauses to breathe more, you're probably training too hard for quote recovery. Hmm. So the the next question I have, Alex, is um, and so we talked about high intensity versus low intensity, and you had mentioned before that you wanted to get maybe a little bit more into the program or concurrent training and programming. Um, before the podcast was, you know, many people often hear the 80, 20 rule. And we had even talked about that in the last podcast. Yeah. I was listening to, um, the triathlon show. It's another podcast, which Paul Lawson was on as I was researching as well. I just wanted to hear, hear him speak as much as possible. <laughs> and they had this really good question was what is the, 
the amount of hours per week where the 80-20 becomes more important. So if someone's only doing two hours per week, yeah. it doesn't really make sense to do 80-20, especially in light of all of what we've just been saying of high intensity versus low. And uh, Paul had said for him, he usually starts around 20 hours is when he likes to see that shift. Uh, but the guy who was the show producer, I'd mentioned he had, had someone on previously that had said seven hours is when he starts to shift it. Um, and uh, so uh, Paul just said, oh, that that's interesting. Uh, like, I'll have to look into it. So I was wondering maybe if you had a thought on what the hours peak would be for you. I, w- I would say uh, if you are approaching 20 hours per week and not already doing 80-20, meaning most of your work is long, slow distance, and some of it is is high intensity, uh, or or even less high intensity. I, I just can't see how you could even get to twenty hours with with yeah. more than a quarter of it, or more than twenty percent of it being high intensity. Certainly, actually, I I take that back. I have lots of clients that do get to that, but I, I genuinely believe that their training would go better, their improvement rate would be higher, Adapta- aerobic adaptations would be faster if they took down the number of hours they did at high intensity. So I think I think that um, I mean, for example, my wife trained at a, what I would consider a very high level for triathlon. Trained, uh, she's trained for three years for triathlon after switching from sprinting, like like a six to ten second races in track and field. Um, so from very low aerobic ability to very high aerobic ability, and we really pushed the limit for three years. And she ended up uh, her fastest uh, standard distance sprint triathlon as a 105. So about five minutes or six six minutes off what like the best in the world can do. So similar to like if, if the half marathon world record is an hour, she does uh, an equivalent uh, ratio difference in her sport for perspective is oh. oh 105 half marathon she's a good endurance athlete and we trained her uh, and really pushed the limits of what she could handle for volume up to like 15 or 20 hours a week um but by the time we got to even 12 hours a week if she was doing more than 25 percent high intensity stuff but it was like a recipe for disaster so i i can't imagine how somebody could do 16 and adapt well um I just it seems outside the realm of possibility for the normal person. I think that I'm, I might put the number at eight to twelve somewhere in there. Okay, that that makes sense. Yeah, um, I just thought that was very interesting because uh, I'd actually never heard someone put like um, an actual like hours per week mm-hmm. stamp on the idea. It yeah. just yeah, it's, it was always just mentioned that oh, you want it to be eighty twenty, but if you only have a couple hours to do your conditioning, it doesn't, that doesn't make sense really. Yeah, you're right. Uh, go ahead, yeah. So um, we know that there are people in the, the concurrent field who will plan out bouts of strength and quote unquote volume or hypertrophy training in, in more of this undulating fashion to correspond with a concurrent plan that also involves the aerobic systems. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if if you were to think about this, if someone were to have because we, we mentioned like right the the, the the distraction effect being quite real, if someone wanted to take it all on, um, low slow distance high intensity intervals 
volume and strength. Would there be a way that you'd recommend working that within a microcycle for best results? Um, I've heard, for instance, condensing some of the more uh, higher intensities, <clears throat> higher volumes to the beginning of the week, allowing for the strength and lo uh, low slow distance uh, to the end of the week. Mm -hmm. uh, write something similar to that. Yep. If I if I were uh, held at gunpoint to write some some training program that included everything all in one microcycle, that's exactly how I would do it. Uh, but I just I don't think that you could ever convince me to put. Uh, all of those things together in one microcycle, except except for somebody who walks in off the street, has never trained, or has trained trained for something completely different, and says, "I want to be the best I can be in two months for the CrossFit Open," which I know doesn't exist in the same capacity it used to. But if somebody, yeah, they needed maximum performance in everything across the board in two months and for some reason that was what was needed then yeah that's exactly how i would write it the harder the harder stuff at the front of the week uh, when they're fresher and the easier stuff at the end and, and the, the simple takeaway and i agree with you there for for you all listening is that if there isn't competition coming up that Alex explained earlier as having like a peak where, you know, you might take all of that on and take on a lot of fatigue, but hopefully have a taper for an event is that you would otherwise best be served with some sense of planning. For sure. Um, Basic planning, meaning your, your you phase, each one of your phases has an emphasis of some sort or a couple, a couple, a couple emphases. Yeah. So, you know, um, <clears throat> instead of taking it all on at once, you can, as we've mentioned in other podcasts, uh, you can run a needs analysis. So you might find, okay, well, my high intensity work uh, is, is kind of lacking. My engine, quote unquote, is lacking, but strength is there. Well, okay, maybe we can take the strength training, keep it at maintenance, push the high intensity work. Maybe you work on some uh, technical aspects too, if you need them that are not really fatiguing, maybe like as it pertains to gymnastics or technique for weightlifting while keeping load down. And this is, of course, why you get coaches. This is what you would see people like us for. for sure. But if you're trying it all on your own, you can take some work off your plate by just taking your needs analysis and put it up against what we're providing you with in terms of what the literature is saying, that if you have some kind of plan, you ultimately can, because this ultimately is a question of uh, fatigue management, monitor how much fatigue you're taking on relative to the performance gains that you're that you desire yeah, the ones that you actually need right now uh, or yeah. what can be put off till later or or that would even adapt better later having built a base of whatever you're going to build on um mm -hmm. i was going yeah. to ask you guys a question um i'm from the northwest i spent some time living in east tennessee which i felt like was more like the south when i was there i think a lot of a lot of the people in east tennessee felt the same um so well, where are you guys located asheville so we're like yeah we're, we're an hour away 45 we're like minutes an hour, away. yeah 45 minutes away from etsu so is that considered the south um yes oh. yeah, asheville is like very progressive but around asheville around, yeah if you like if you take a drive 20 minutes yeah you're in the south so when I when I went to Tennessee, I was alarmed by how many people were I would say uh, a resistance training emphasis. Whereas in in Washington, 
I, yeah. everybody is endurance training emphasis. Like you can't find a person. I have, I've, I'm going to offend a whole bunch of Washingtonians who lift, but you can't find a person who lifts here. Um, whereas it seemed to be the opposite in Tennessee. And obviously we walked into a graduate program that was focused on weightlifting. So bias there for sure. But it seemed, seemed like we walked into the building and everybody lifted and nobody could like run a mile. And even the cross country team at the B1 school was like way worse than our D2 cross country team from the Northwest. So, um, it was like at the time for us, it was like walking into heaven because we had like been longing for lifting and power and speed. Um, but I was going to ask, do you find in the clients that come to you looking for improved CrossFit performance, do you find that, um, do you find that most people come to you strong and unfit or more people come to you quite fit, but needing to be stronger? Well, we the majority of our CrossFitters, especially those who compete, are from kind of all over um, internationally. They're not as much in Asheville. I, I do think though that people in Asheville might be an outlier because it's a very like active population. People yeah, yeah. Uh, I tend to be um, like quite uh, want to you know get out and bike and hike and do all these aerobic things. But I, I, I do think uh, that at least like on the whole, I could say that the the majority of CrossFitters that, that we've come, that have come to us just seem to lack more in their strength characteristics than they do. I agree. Endurance. Okay. Um, okay. The Metcon is so important. Yeah. And simply just because of that is because they put so much stake in the Metcon, but I can, you're saying based on like hobbies and interests and things, things like that. Okay. Then, uh, then it's not quite as different from the Northwest as I thought. It might have been some of my bias that I walked into the Olympic training set for weightlifting. Yeah, yeah, I would definitely, I would definitely say, except for a couple outliers, that most people lack the strength, and that ends up limiting limiting them in some metcons for sure. Uh, but they're usually pretty fit endurance wise. Um, and then they'll just get, uh, caught up by some like lifting portion that ends, that ends up popping up in some workout or something like that. Makes sense. Yeah. So based on, on the, the research here, Alex, that we've discussed today, do you feel as though there are areas of the field, um, and, and this would again pertain to CrossFit. It might be somewhere between what we've discussed and the pull-up example you mentioned. But are there any uh, areas of like research? And the hard thing with CrossFit is right under is being able to categorize uh, um, not just workouts, but like you know types of movements and, and what the events will actually be. But do you see there being any difference between the CrossFit-specific? movements that are performed within this high intensity setting versus how the research is conducting the high intensity setting or how the research is involving exercise within that high intensity setting if that makes sense yeah um i would say that the crossfit crossfit activities tend to involve more total musculature than often is used in the research setting but in terms of how that might change, um, how that might change how we do research or the findings of the research, I'm not sure that it will have that big of an impact. Um, I think that the recommendations 
I, th I think that a lot of things in research can be looked at in a more simple way and then extrapolated quite reliably to more complex systems. As an example, like we did a lot of isometric strength testing that was really a, a really solid, reliable test for uh, outside concentric or, a, um, oh my gosh, what's the word? exercises like a squat that have any centric and concentric phase and it's killing me that I can't remember the word for that right now. Um, uh, anyway, that their simple tests are often extra quite easily and reliably extrapolated to uh, more complex things like CrossFit. So if we test somebody on a bike with high intensity interval training and we find XY adaptations for their aerobic system, chances are it's going to be the same if they do pull-ups and power cleans for the same, for the same purpose. Mm -hmm. Um, what was the, I think there was another part to your question that I'm missing though. No, no, I, I, I think that, that hit it. Um, I think you answered it, um, as for how the research is evaluation or actual like practical, uh, practical, um, uh, not implication, but the practical use of high intensity would perhaps differ from how a CrossFitter with CrossFit like exercise, uh, if, if, Results would differ there, but you know, like you said, it's just extrapolating those major scientific findings, and from there we just make our best yeah. best guess. So, um, you know, another thing, um, because I, I think one of the the challenges with the the CrossFit athlete is is a want to take on all at once, but if we can almost kind of synthesize and going back to our initial uh, podcast, a, a general periodized plan based on someone's uh, um, requisite strength and abilities within uh, their, what we'd call like their strength-based training or their endurance training. It might you kind of talk us through if you don't quite have this, maybe prioritize this on both sides of the fence. Because last podcast we had you on and you spoke about the importance of having good relative strength, uh, strength relative to your body weight, um, uh, namely, um, but then also strength relative to say like a one rep max. Could you break that down to where a CrossFitter might want to start and where they might ultimately want to progress? Yeah, so I I think that that actually goes back to the question of do you guys see things differently in your region of the country? And it sounds like probably not. Um, it sounds like strength tends to be a, a limiting factor, whether it's absolute or relative strength, meaning relative to one's own body weight or just the absolute number on the bar. That tends to be the limiting factor for performance at um, a lot of levels of CrossFit. Um, so. Uh, I guess in terms of quantifying, like how much strength do I need? I would say work towards a double body weight squat and then uh, call us back. Um, no, but but seriously, if you're if you're at a 0.5 times body weight squat, work times squat, work work towards squatting your body weight, and then work towards squatting 1.25 times your body weight, and then 1.5 times your body weight, and then towards 1.75 and double, um, because I think that the diminishing returns for strength don't really start to appear until you're well over double body weight squat. Unless for some reason you trained just for, like just for lifting for years on end and completely neglected your cardiovascular fitness, 
obviously there would be a faster rate of returns if you just tune up your cardiovascular fitness a bit and maintain your strength for a block or two. But I have a lot of, I have a lot of clients and athletes that would do well to take a year or two years off of CrossFit if they wanted to improve their CrossFit performance and just get stronger, like a weightlifter or like a powerlifter. Yeah. And I guess a very easy example of how important strength is, is that, you know, the, the best guy in the sport, Matt Frazier, already had like a 500 plus squat when he came in and a 15 snatch. And he simply like didn't have to do any strength work and could just do endurance yes. the whole time. And, because and Im- importantly, had- he'd had those numbers for a long time too. So he wasn't, yeah. he wasn't just sitting on uh, a 500 pound squat or whatever uh, relative strength that he had just acquired that might be, uh, more more readily affected by doing cardio he'd probably been squatting that much since he was a kid because he'd been weightlifting since for as long as he could remember yeah. i think if i'm remembering right uh yeah I, I can't remember his history but i just remember thinking wow that explains why he can do what he does because he's been strong forever um which highlights the importance of getting strong today not tomorrow because the longer you can be strong the easier it is to maintain that strength when you go into a maintenance phase and need to touch on cardio or skill or whatnot. I I was just going to say that was a, as you said that that was really, uh, I think a really good point that you can't just all of a sudden get there and switch right away because you haven't had time to actually uh, maintain or keep that level of strength. So a, a farther decrease if you're, if you go right like away from it. Yeah. And, and similarly this, athlete development in terms of finding peak potentials and strength versus finding your peak potentials and endurance if you were to put training or sorry biological ages to that it would favor getting the strength as early as you can at well we're not saying like a youth athlete get as strong as you can as a youth athlete but i would say that yes <laughs> i would say yeah as a youth athlete get as strong as you can shoot when you're 12 start squatting when you i mean genuinely I would say the the and the position standard then NSCA um, would say the same thing. Start squatting early. Start lifting early. Start learning the techniques early. And honestly, you can start load bearing like when you're five years old, as long as it is truly progressive. So that means you're squatting twelve pounds and then you increase it to twelve and a half pounds for a five year old. Um, you don't you, you don't get out the five pound plates for the twelve for the five year old. Um, but genuinely you can start accruing strength at a really young age. It doesn't do anything to growth plates or any of that nonsense. Um, so yeah, start training when you're really young because it it pays off. If you can squat two and a half times your body weight when you're 18, you are going to be able to walk into a lot of sports when you're 25 and do whatever you want. Yeah. One of our, um, our national level weightlifters, uh, who at this point, he's just really kind of refining his, his technique and just gaining more experience at like the highest of rankings mm-hmm. and, and stages in the nation. He, he started squatting at such a young age. He's at a 60, uh, uh, what is he at now? He's at a 75 kilo body weight and not long ago. He squatted he, 235. Yeah, he hit 190 for 10. Yeah. So he, yeah. he hit or what is it? What is one ninety? He had four twenty for ten at a at a which is body like two point five two point five body weight squat for for ten. So you know if 
if Anthony were to want to pivot to CrossFit, I'd say, all right, well, like, let's, yeah, let's go all in. Um, so yeah, Kate, you know, evidence to your point there. Um, I, I think if we're to, to kind of bring this all together, the distraction effect doesn't affect new trainees, but that even new trainees uh, might want to consider what they want to prioritize most. It would be strength up front. And of course, you could perhaps dabble in your high intensity, dabble with CrossFit so that you learn the CrossFit skill if CrossFit really is what you want to do. But as you become more advanced, you just have to be aware that this distraction effect will become increasingly more present. So you have to be all the more intelligent about how you program or make coach is knowledgeable about this so that there is some sense of phasic structure allowing you to improve in the areas you need so that they don't as the name implies distract from one another because when done appropriately you can do great work and just know that and i've heard this and it's so confusing to me people will say they do that their gym is a competitive crossfit gym and for them, Alex, that means that they, rather than training Metcon for one hour, they, they train me. for three hours. Oh, God. Just more Metcon. Yeah. That is not how any true competitive CrossFitter trains. Doing more Metcon for multiple more hours in the day is, is not how you become a competitor. You need to have some sense of where you need to improve relative to how the top performers are performing and basically take it. In, the, uh, in a larger planning period, uh, prioritizing what you need. That is not a joke, Alex. That That is what makes a competitive that, CrossFit that gym. laughably oh. bad because the, there's there's probably there's probably 100, but I can think of three or four or five things off the top of my head that you should focus on more than doing just more Metcon for most people if you want, if they want to be competitive which if they're calling themselves a competitive CrossFit gym is what I would assume they're targeting, you would, number one, strength, like you mentioned. Number two, skills of all the gymnastics movements. Number three, skills of the Olympic movements. Um, number four, skills of transitioning between movements. Um, and I know that sounds like such a nitty-gritty, or maybe it doesn't to a CrossFit person, but like in, in a triathlon, like we practice buckling our helmet, like, so that we're fast at that, you know, like, so practice, like which foot goes where, when you do a burpee over the bar and, and be so expert at it that you never make a mistake at it. Even when you're fatigued and your heart rate's 180, like that's how good you need to be at the skills. So if they're going to spend more time doing CrossFit like stuff, it should be on skill training, um, which, but that's harder then that's why they don't do it is because it takes more hands-on coaching, it takes more hands-on deck, and it takes really attentive members to, to do that. Oh, you still there? Yeah. Did, did, we, did I lose you? Yeah, just oh, for a sorry. second. Um, anyway, I was, I was just saying it takes, it takes more coaches and more hands-on deck um, to, to be able to do really quality skill training sessions, and it takes really attentive members. And for somebody who actually doesn't want to compete and just wants to feel like they're competing, then lots of Metcon will feel like that well well uh, uh i think you just uh 
made our infographic for us, Alex. So that was pretty <laughs> sweet. Awesome right one, one was strength, gymnastics skill, transition skill. Do we miss it? And Ollie. Oh, yeah. What's the fifth? Oh, uh, gosh, gosh. I might have forgotten. <laughs> Did we get four? I got. We got four. Um, shoot, more important it. than uh, just doing more Metcon. Um, put strength again. <laughs> to kind of sandwich it together oh the the, the Uh, one other thing i wanted to mention before uh we go and i'm sorry if i'm making your podcast super long um is is that uh strength takes a long time to develop you're not going to go from one times bodyweight squat to two times bodyweight squat in a month or even a year whereas uh, the research is quite clear especially in using high intensity interval training with longer intervals uh, and, and higher work to rest ratios of like two work to one rest, aerobic adaptations come quite quickly. So you can you can be out of shape and three months later be in pretty good shape, especially if you have a huge baseline strength. I mean, you can see like thirty percent, forty percent improvement in aero in simply VO two max, not alone or like not to mention muscular endurance and lactate threshold and all of that. But you can see. Massive, massive improvements in VO2 max in relatively lesser trained aerobically folks in in a three month or a six month program. So, I mean, it sort of lends towards the idea of squat for five years, deadlift for five years, clean for five years altogether, and then spend six months to a year getting tuned up aerobically. And you might be much more well suited to CrossFit than, than metconning all the time. Again, it's funny. That's a, a, a perfect example is again, Razor, because in about a year, he went from not uh, doing any Metcons to winning competitions and making the games, I believe. Yeah, it's like it was a year right. and a half that he, he yeah. like had first begun. And then all of a sudden, I think he had went to one regionals and then he made it the next year. But he had made regionals the first time he tried or something. Well, like what, and what's interesting about him, and I, you know, I don't want to get into like a whole like is he taking it thing debate um but he not only went from weightlifting into crossfit and seeing those those endurance improvements which as we've mentioned is understandable but perhaps now exploring his genetic potential therein he's now winning the endurance events Mm -hmm. yeah like it's it's absolutely crazy but it does follow this timeline that we're talking about which Mm -hmm. is really cool yeah, makes sense. Wow. Well, yeah. Thanks. Thanks for coming I, I on again, like Alex. That was uh, great. Yeah, I think that was a great conversation. Really tied a bunch of stuff together, and and likely answered a bunch of questions that many people had in terms of high intensity, low intensity, how strength can mix into that, how to maybe structure everything together. And, cool. And, and Alex, can I, one more question. Mm-hmm. Um, I think. Um. Hmm. Uh. You know, this I think would be such a relative to you know where people are versus the say like the strength guidelines that you've given for the squat, for one. Um, but let's say someone's planning out this this timeline. Um, if if you were coaching someone, would you look because as you mentioned, the time it takes to build that strength is so mm-hmm. long. Probably keep people in the game mentally. Like you're not going to just pound it all. The- it needs analysis it, would you look at an athlete's results and say okay we've gained like x percentage in strength in x time 
maybe we'll phase out for a little bit and come back. So as to say, like, if someone's a hard gainer, maybe they need to stick on it. But is there a good, like, in your mind, a good sense of progress each year that someone could realistically make? I think I've heard something like, uh, you know, a new trainee, and even more for someone who's untrained, can gain like 15% or more in strength. Uh, any ideas there for how that might apply to our audience and when they might be able to like go into a different phase of training if they are working strength? Yeah, so I think I think competing annually and having something or some series of competitions uh, annually is a good starting place for somebody who wants to be in it for the long haul. If somebody says, okay, I'm, I'm new to CrossFit, but I want to go to regionals in four years or, or the games in three or four years, um, I would say setting them up so that you can spend six to eight months working on muscle size, strength, and power, um, and then dialing things in for competition for three to four months, and then going back into a longer phase of strength building. I think that's a, a sort of an optimal way to do it for uh, even the most um, distractible and uh, potentially uh, bored with training folks. I have I have some folks who who they're of that mindset that and they're admittedly they're like I I get so bored doing strength training I just want to go back and do like uh, Metcon or whatever um, and I totally get it. But even them, the most distractible, I think they they most of them can sit down and hammer out six months of of dedicated hypertrophy strength and then peaking because they're getting to do olympic weightlifting they're getting to do the gymnastics movements and skill development along the way they're just not doing a whole bunch of metcons um so i think doing that doing that and then annually having a block of a block of competitions back to back to back in a comp competitive phase is a good way to organize it where i think people get in trouble is trying to do like a month of strength training and then prepare for competition six weeks of strength training prepare for competition i think that's troublesome Gotcha. So rather than uh, you know, ascribing a number to it, it's just perhaps seeing how you go up against a field that you might most often, and when you kind of set your goals uh, at the beginning of the year, uh, how you improve against that that field. Perhaps. Yeah, and honestly, the, if if people are getting stronger, let's say they get that first year twenty percent gain in strength or thirty percent gain in strength in the first year. Um, they're going to go into the same competition that they did the first time and they're going to be a different athlete. They're like where they placed mid like 50th percentile before they're going to be top 15% now simply with strength gains and a little bit of aerobic tune-up. And I think that is a really important and engaging thing for people to realize and it will allow them to hunker down again and do the strength training again because they saw the results, not just in their squat and clean going up, but in also the Metcon, which is what they wanted to improve in the first place. Mm -hmm. and, and I um, advise the CrossFitter who's um, attempting to do this, that when they go into their strength training that there is, because um, sometimes uh, at least how CrossFit was originally programmed for and still is the original CrossFit headquarters, was you'd have some strength days. Uh, that's not how we're encouraging you to improve your strength because it's a little bit more sporadic. In fact, it's entirely sporadic, um, which might be good for GPP and fun, but if you're looking to improve strength in the way that we're describing, you want some kind of thought out plan in some way, shape or form, whether you're researching 
weightlifting plans separate to your Metcon and then you supplement with your Metcon or strength programs. You just want to make sure that this is a thought out plan, not something uh, that's just kind of, of a hodgepodge of, okay, now I'm lifting heavy weight and then the next day I'm lifting heavy weight, but with a totally different exercise and no sense of progression. Sure. It needs to progress within a month. It has, there has to be progressive overload. Uh, so, so just a reminder, guys. So uh, you don't have to. You know, there, there are going to be some bad days, and you might have to re react to training. But um, want to just make sure you have a plan. Want to be considerate of this interference effect based on your training experience and training age. Recognize the importance of strength, and maybe also strength where you need it too. So if you know your squat's good, but then deadlift wor workouts kill you, then maybe you prioritize pulling strength for a couple mesocycles. Um, just peeling back the layers of the onion. Uh, it can be a little overwhelming at first, but definitely start with your needs analysis. It'll make you feel a lot more confident, confident, and a lot more focused on where to go. And if you're an advanced athlete, you want to definitely start to consider the finer details of your gymnastics technique, as Alex said, Olympic technique, and the transition skills that are so uh, important uh, to succeeding, especially in CrossFit triplets or, or I was going to say couplets, but in fact, CrossFit, anything, mm -hmm. uh, just aware of those transitions whenever you're performing a Metcon is very important. Yeah. I had a, when you said the transition, I immediately thought of 18.2, which was like a 20 minute mm -hmm. AMRAP. And just by having the rower right underneath the pull-up bar mm -hmm. and the dumbbell right there, people improve their scores by like like 50 to 80 it was reps. 18.1. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just just the transitions. Of course, uh, especially in a 20-minute workout, made like a huge <laughs> yeah, difference. Yeah, it made a difference. Yeah. Awesome. Well, um, I, great. I just have so appreciated this conversation and enjoyed it. Alex, thanks so much for your time. And thank you all for listening. Uh, stay tuned for more, guys. Bye.